This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. So let's read together today's section of scripture that we're going to study, and that's Luke chapter 2, verses uh, 41 through 52. So it's actually the, uh, the last verses of Luke chapter 2. We're going to finish chapter 2. Verse 41 here. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came into Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. For God, as we come to this um, really rare section of Scripture, um, rare in terms of we don't know a lot about your life, from age toddler to 30. Just this one little instance that we have given to us by Luke, and we're thankful for that. I think we can learn a lot from it. So I pray today that you would help us with this, that you would help us and you would teach us about what it was that you were doing, because we know that there must have been purpose in this event that took place. So help us to find that today, and help us to find the purpose that it might have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the only story in all four Gospels about Jesus between the, the, his infancy and his public ministry as a man, as a fully grown man around age 30. And some people have argued that, you know, some scholars throughout history have argued that this story is a legend that was created by the early church to try to fill in some of the gaps in their knowledge of who Jesus, you know, Jesus' life. That, you know, because there's so many years that we just don't have much written about. And in fact, there were a lot of other legends that were written, and mythological and you know, some cults have created stories as well, but not just cults, but just people in general. Some people wrote gospels, you know, 200 years later called infancy gospels. And they told stories that were just not true. They just kind of made up stories that people would, would tell about Jesus, these legends. And so some people have actually thought that this, also because there are so many legends about his boyhood, 
that this also was a legend. But Luke includes this particular story in his gospel. And so what should we make of this? What should we, how should we think about this? Well, one, we believe that God's word is, is trustworthy. We believe is, that the scripture is God-breathed, that the full counsel of his word is, is useful to us for teaching and learning and growth and maturity, as Paul, as, uh, as Paul writes later. And so first of all, I think we have to be aware that in those later years, as I mentioned, the second and third centuries, for the most part, it was common for these legends to arise about Jesus' boyhood, the boy Jesus. And they were put into what we know as uh, apocryphal books, the apocrypha. The, the apocryphal gospels. And what those are, they're just simply accounts of Jesus. They're, they're writings about Jesus that came later, but they're writings that the early church rejected as not having the same authority as the four gospels that are in our Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. So as hundreds of scholars have looked back upon those times and, and all the events, they consider two really important things regarding the wisdom of the church in recognizing the authority of those four Gospels alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and recognizing them as Holy Scripture and not the others. And the first thing is this. One is, there were so few stories about Jesus' childhood in all of these, you know, in all these Gospels, there just isn't anything there. That it, it was clear to the early church that the writers of the Gospels were not interested in feeding the, uh, you know, the sincere curiosity that the church had about what Jesus did and who he was with just legends and speculations about his childhood. And, and so if they didn't get any stories about his childhood from the eyewitnesses, they wouldn't have written them down. And that's probably one of the big reasons why we don't have anything, that the writers of the Gospels were just content to leave almost 30 years of blank space in, space in Jesus' life because their main interest and their primary uh, uh, you know, purpose here is in the heart of the Gospel was their primary you know, aim. That was what they were desiring to do most, is give the heart of the Gospel teaching of what Jesus came to do, as opposed to just peripheral matters. They didn't want to waste time writing about things that they had to speculate about, which we're thankful for, because we don't want speculation, we want truth. And the other thing is that the one story that Luke does include, which is what we just read in chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, it is, it is so reserved, like there's just not a lot of excitement there. I mean, there's, there's, it's, so, it's so different than all the other legends that came up about Jesus in his, child, in his childhood. Um, it doesn't portray Jesus as doing anything supernatural. It doesn't portray him as doing anything amazing that would cause people to go, whoa, you know, this, is, this is different here. And it doesn't portray him as speaking in some authoritative way that was disproportionate to his age, um, as, as what we see in some of the other apocryphal um, infancy gospels. And so what Luke does the story in Luke's gospel as we you know as, as we just read it it comes to a real I mean the biggest climax in the story the main you know and the main point is not some supernatural achievement that Jesus does but just a simple sentence that you may have caught where he says I must be about my father's business and that was something that Mary and Joseph didn't understand when Jesus was explaining that or he said I must be 
in my father's house in verse 49. And so for just a minute, what I'd like to do is I would like to contrast this story from the scripture with some of the other stories that came about from some of the, 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 the apocryphal, the, the false gospels, the, the infancy gospels. The reason they're called, like there's an infancy gospel of Thomas, for example. I'll read you a story from it. And the reason they called them infancy gospels is because these were a collection, a small collection of stories about Jesus's boyhood. And as I, as I mentioned, these came a couple hundred years later, and they were they were never verified as truth by anyone uh, in in that day. Here's something that uh, from the second century, from the infancy gospel of Thomas. Find it. Here we go. When this boy Jesus was five years old. He was playing at the ford of a brook, and he gathered together into pools the water that flowed by, and made it at once clean, and commanded it by his word alone. But the son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there with Joseph, and he took a branch of a willow, and with it he dispersed the water which Jesus had gathered together. When Jesus saw what he had done, he was enraged, and said to him, You insolent, godless dunderhead, what harm did the, did the pools and the water do to you? See, now you also shall wither like a tree and shall bear neither leaves nor root nor fruit. And immediately that lad withered up completely. And Jesus departed and went into Joseph's house. But the parents of him who was withered took him away, bewailing his youth, and brought him to Joseph and reproached him and said, What a child you have to do such things. And after this, he again went through the village and a lad ran and knocked against his shoulder. And Jesus was exasperated and said to him, You shall not go further on your way. And the child immediately fell down and died. But some who saw what took place said, From where does this child spring? Since every word is an accomplished deed. Can you see why that's not part, why the early church didn't choose that, right? It's just, it's bizarre. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's, they want to try to find ways to say, Hey, this was not some ordinary kid. This was, this was a powerful, you know, well, tyrant is what it sounds like. Here's another one. I'll read you one more. From the Arabic infancy gospel. One day, when Jesus was running around and playing with some children, he passed by the workshop of a dyer called Salem. They had in the workshop many cloths which he had to dye. Well, the Lord Jesus went into the dyer's workshop, took all these cloths, and put them into the cauldron full of indigo. When Salem came and saw that the cloths were spoiled, he began to cry aloud and ask the Lord Jesus, saying, What have you done to me, son of Mary? You have ruined my reputation in the eyes of all the people of the city, for everyone orders a suitable color for himself, but you have come and spoiled everything. And the Lord Jesus replied, I'll change the color. I'll change for you the color of any cloth which you uh, wish to be changed. And he immediately began to take the cloths out of the cauldron. Each of them died as the dyer wished until he had taken them all out. When the Jews saw this miracle of wonder, they praised God. So that's it. That's the end of that story. So after you know, you can you can read more stories about that. But again, you got to remember they're just fiction. Here's a really interesting thing. After stories like those, and they're all kind of like that, they all have that flair to them. This account that we actually have seems a little dull. <laughs> I mean, there's not much there, right? 
And I would say that is precisely what speaks in favor of its authenticity. It doesn't appear to be motivated by this desire to overplay Jesus's uniqueness among the people. And the claim, you know, for his, you know, to his uniqueness is actually pretty subtle, and, and it harmonizes with the way that Jesus lived and acted most of the time. You know, in addition, some scholars are almost 100% certain that the Greek language of the story that we read in the Gospel of Luke is a translation of the Semitic language of Palestine, which means that it was not created in the Greek-speaking areas that were far removed from the land where the eyewitnesses would have been, which is the people that Luke would have gone to interview, which was actually the case for the language of the legends that came later. And what this means is Luke's account is Jewish in content and it's in its, in its language, and therefore it probably originated in Palestine, and the most likely source for this story is Mary. Because of that, they've been able to trace all that back. And we know from, from uh, chapter 1, verse 2, that Luke puts a high premium on the eyewitnesses that he goes to speak with. Eyewitness confirmation, eyewitness testimony is his priority in his investigation of this man who was God. And we also know from the book of Acts that while Paul was imprisoned for two years in Jerusalem and in Caesarea, his sidekick was Luke. And at that time, Luke was not imprisoned, and so he probably at that time went out roaming around Jerusalem interviewing people who were getting to be older in age, but were eyewitnesses and people who had experienced the things that Jesus had done. And we know that Luke did that to collect information for his gospel as he was writing this for the one who was funding him, Theophilus. And finally, I'll say this, as, we, as we've seen mentioned three times already in this gospel, in the first couple chapters, he, he mentions people storing up experiences and treasuring them in their hearts. And, and what he's saying there is, these are things that these people remember. They remember. In chapter 1, verse 66, when it talks about the birth of John the Baptist, um, it says that the people laid it up in their hearts, saying, you know, what will then this child be, right? And then later in chapter 2, verse 19, when the shepherds come to, to Bethlehem, Luke says, but Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And then here at the end of this text today, we read it again in verse 51 of chapter 2, it says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And so I, I got to wonder, do you think that maybe the, the purpose, you know, the, or the most likely reason for the mentioning of this, like he keeps mentioning, they stored these things in their heart. I'm guessing that maybe a reason why Luke chooses to mention this so often, these memories and treasuring things, was to probably give Theophilus a clue, and us, who all of us who have come to read this later on, a clue as to how he, Luke, the writer, a Gentile, foreigner among these people, was actually able to write as much as he did about Jesus' childhood. Because Luke himself wouldn't have known. He would have had to have get, gotten them, getting them, he would have had to have gotten them from these people who stored all, all these memories from the things that they experienced with Jesus, particularly Mary. So, in light of how few stories we have in all four Gospels about Jesus' boyhood and how much more reserved they are, the ones that we do have, 
than the, the, the legends that have come up and how great Luke's concern is to trace things out very carefully and, and confirm it all with eyewitnesses and how Jewish the setting and the language is and how easily available Mary probably was to confirm and to recall these things that she had treasured up in her heart. It seems to me that the claim that some people have that this is among the legends of, of Jesus' boyhood is probably a wrong claim. It's a wrong assumption. And, and, and such an assumption probably stems, my guess is, from an unwillingness to own up to the main point of this story and the main point of Luke's gospel, specifically that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. So now let's do this. Let's read through this narrative that we have again, okay? And this time, let's just make some comments as we go to see if we can sort of hit on the main point and, and take away any lessons that we might have uh, for our lives. So verse 41 again. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. So here again, as I said last week, Luke stresses again and again and again how devout and how faithful Jesus' parents were. We saw this in the verses that we studied last week, how Mary and Joseph did all that the Mosaic law required. And by stressing this, Luke tries to help us and to help Theophilus, the one who's going to receive this, to accept the fact that although Jesus was later going to be killed by Jewish teachers, it was not because he was outside of the Jewish faith. Jesus' parents, and we'll now see Jesus himself, were devoted to the law of Moses. So there was something else that caused these Jewish leaders to want to kill him because he was one of them. That's what Luke is saying. Jesus went to the temple and they loved the scripture. His family loved the scriptures. They studied the scriptures. They obeyed the scriptures. So this was, a, this was not the issue. And Luke's going to show us, I think, later on in chapter 4, the real reason why Jesus, a devout Jew, would have been rejected and killed by his own people. Verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. You know, the fact that this event happened when he was 12 years old is probably significant. The 12th year in a Jewish boy's life <clears throat> excuse me, would have been the final year for a preparation of a boy before he entered full participation in the religious life of the synagogue. Up until that time, it would have been his parents, you know, and particularly the, the, the responsibility was given to the father, but both parents would have been teaching him the commandments of the law. So up until 12, it would have been mostly his parents that were responsible to put that into him. But then at the end of the 12th year of a child, the child goes to a ceremony where he formally takes on the responsibility for himself. All of the responsibility of the law is something that he now needs to do for himself. And at the end of that year, it, uh, or, sorry, it becomes a, they do the, that's where the bar mitzvah comes from, which means son of the commandment. And so now the commandments are yours, like they're not your parents, they, you've got to do them. And so year 12 would have essentially been the last year of boyhood, and he would have been now entering into greater responsibility getting a manhood and take on these adult responsibilities. And so they would have visited the temple every year during this time. And, but there were no stories to tell. But this one, Mary's like, okay, there was this time when he was 12. Let me tell you about this. So year 12 is the year Jesus chose to stay behind in the temple. And perhaps this was a, a, a really crucial turning point 
uh, not only for every Jewish boy's life, but for Jesus, who in some way wanted to demonstrate that he would be more than an ordinary Jewish bar mitzvah. His insight into the commandment was, was going to be more profound than other young men who would become son of the commandment. And his relation to God would be very unique as opposed to other people who went through the same ceremony. Both of those ideas, I think, will become evident here in a minute. Let's, let's move on. Back to the text. Verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Okay, so this is like driving from Athens to Cleveland and realize you left your child back and you got to go and drive back again. Only this is worse because they're probably walking and so a couple of things stick out here in this verse, or in these in verse and a half, and it seems inconsistent. I'll admit it, this seems a little inconsistent, so we should take a look at it. The first thing is this. There seems to be this disregard by Jesus for his parents' time and their feelings, doesn't there? So then we'll talk about that. And the second is this. There is this implicit faith that Mary and Joseph have in their 12-year-old son. Why do I say that? Because I think that if Jesus had been an irresponsible child up to this point, do you think his parents would have gone an entire day without knowing his whereabouts? No way. It's the hellions that you have to keep a constant eye on, right? Not the ones that are actually pretty, pretty decent, right? We know that Mary and Joseph weren't irresponsible because this, this story, I mean, it's amazing that Mary tells this story because what's it make it sound like? It makes it sound like she's irresponsible. We know they weren't irresponsible. My goodness, they were chosen by God to raise God. Right? And so, you know, this supposing he was with the group seems to indicate that they trusted him. And they knew that he had good judgment. And I think it also suggests that Jesus' motive in staying behind was not carelessness. And it was not disrespect. And evidently, he had intentionally let them go in order to demonstrate something more convincingly, something that would be remembered, something a little more forcefully. So let's, let's go back to the text, verse 44. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. So we gotta do some thinking here through this three, how this happens. There's no way really to know whether this means three days since leaving Jerusalem, you know, you know, one out, one back, and one searching for him, which I think that's most likely. Or I guess it could mean three days searching in Jerusalem, like they drove back or walked back, and when they got to Jerusalem, they searched for three days. I think that's hard to imagine that it would be three days after they got back to Jerusalem, because probably Jesus and his parents would have gone to the same place to spend the night. I mean, I'm guessing that they would have gone back to where they were spending the night before. But the one thing we do know about this, because we don't know that, so there's no sense to spend much time on it. But what we do know is how Mary and Joseph and Jesus all feel about this search that comes out later, you know, here in verses 48 and 49. We'll find out how they feel about it. Let's, let's, let's move on. Verse 46. So they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So this sentence right here causes me to think about all sorts of things that we could discuss this morning. You know, and one, one of those things is just the relationship between a teacher and a student and this role of listening and asking questions and answering and just really 
you know, uh, having a hunger for learning, a hunger for growth. And now there's just, when, when you have that, I mean, you guys, you, those of you who are teachers, you know you've got plenty of kids that don't have hunger to learn. But when you've got one, it, it, it's different, isn't it? So that's one thing that, that makes me, I, I think we can make some application there. But another thing is this. There's just constant mystery that we will, we'll wonder about for the rest of our lives. I, I'll learn this. And that is how the divine and human natures of Jesus in, you know, fit in one person. Like how that really, how that worked. You know, for example, if he's God, how can he increase in wisdom? As verse 52 says, right? I once heard a Christian comedian one time say that if God can do everything, can he make a rock big enough that he can't pick it up? Have you ever heard that joke? It's kind of silly. <laughs> Think about it, right? Because if he could, well, then he can't pick it up. So he can't do that, right? But if he couldn't make it big enough to pick it up, well, he couldn't make it big enough. Strange things. But that, those, those are the things that I think, like, this, this makes me wonder, how, how does God, like, how, how did this work, right? You know, and I think we have, we, we do have answers to those questions. Because while he is God, he also chose to take on humanity which would then require growth. I mean, he was a baby, so he had to go through all the growth, you know, the physical growth process as well. At 12, he would have still been growing through puberty. So that's one thing that we see, that, that he did have full humanity. And, you know, and, and another thought, I'll just, we'll, we'll come back to that one, but another thought that this, these verses spark in my mind, or this sentence about Jesus sitting and, and, and listening and taking, you know, teaching and asking questions himself among the teachers, is, is a scene that is going to happen 18 years later when perhaps some of these very same teachers who are sitting here right now in amazement would then be angry at the same man's wisdom and want to kill him. Because there's a good chance that some of these same people are the ones that were saying, crucify this man. And so what I'm going to do is just maybe make a few observations about these three thoughts, okay? The, 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 the uh, issue of teaching, his divinity and his humanity, and then what happens 18 years later. So, remember, first of all, who this book is being written for, right? Theophilus. So it would have been important for him to understand that Jesus knew and loved the law of the scriptures, even at a very early age. And so in, in this very city where he would be later lynched, 20 years later, he would be lynched and crucified. He was right here at this moment, approved at the age of 12. In the, in, the, in the temple. Or maybe he wasn't approved. I mean, I suppose you can be, because it says they were astonished at his teaching, right? I suppose you can be astonished at something that you don't like, right? I mean, like maybe these teachers of the law didn't really care for the implications of Jesus' understanding and his answers that he gave, right? Luke says he has a lot of understanding and answers. You know, so maybe they were astonished, but then it's like, okay, a 12 year old isn't really that much of a threat. Right? Maybe their astonishment was more of a disdain. They didn't like it, but it's like, well, he's 12. What can he really do, right? They could pat him on the head and say, wow, that's a smart kid. And they could return on to their own religiosity and hypocrisy. I think there's a parallel for this experience in our, in our day to day. I saw it actually a lot as a youth pastor. A young person gets saved, like say maybe at a week of church camp. And he returns home to his unbelieving family and the first thing he wants to do is tell his dad all about Jesus and about his new faith in Jesus. So his dad might smile 
you know, sort of condescendingly as if to say, oh, that's nice for kids, right? But then this boy grows into a man, and he still has that faith that he embraced when he was 12 years old. But now as an adult, the issues around that faith sharpen a little bit, and the differences become even greater in the focus between him and his, and his parents. And so now the dad can't be indifferent anymore, right? Now the crisis comes. Well, it's either conversion or alienation, one or the other. And so unfortunately, that's what happens. It, it, one or the other happens. Jesus even said this in Matthew chapter 12. He said, he who is not with me is against me. And, and you see that happen. So the second thing that, that we see here is this. I think this text has some important implications for understanding the divinity of Christ, and it helps us to understand what Paul meant. Because remember, Paul said this in Philippians 2. He said, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he, and this is what Paul says, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Have you ever thought about what exactly Paul means by emptying himself? You know, and, I, and I, I think that as you look at this story of Jesus, you know, of, of hearing about Jesus growing in stature, but also in wisdom, and thinking, well, how can God grow in wisdom? That maybe this is one of the things that he emptied of himself, right? Like maybe one of the things he emptied of himself was omniscience. Like he didn't, he didn't know everything. He had to grow. And, and we have a hint of this, you know, even in Jesus' own words, when he says later on, uh, speaking about his return, he says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels or the, you know, in heaven, nor the Son of God, but only the Father is. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought, how does Jesus not know? Well, because he, even though he was fully God, did not consider equality with God while he was here, something to be grasped. But wow, here, he emptied himself. So here at the age of 12, Jesus isn't just playing games with these scribes in here. He's not like, I already know everything, but I'm going to act, you know, ask these guys questions. I think he's truly seeking answers. I really do. I think he's, his questions are sincere. And I think he's truly trying to gain insight because verse 52 says he increased in wisdom. And what I love about this, and what I love about the fact that this child that is standing before us here in the temple, this young Jesus, is again, what, we've, what have we said all during this Christmas season as we've read through the story? He's not so different from us. And he can serve as an example for us and for our children as we raise them to grow in wisdom, grow in, 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 in faith. And that's what Jesus did. That's what he did. He was fully human. Though he was God, he was fully human as well. And this brings us to the third, the third topic that's triggered here by these verses. And I think we can learn something here from the way Jesus related with these teachers. I said it's really interesting how he sat down as a student, but he was also a teacher. And so there are, there are four really quick things. If you're writing things down, there are four things. One, he sought out teachers and he sat in their presence. That's one of the things he would have been doing here in the temple. He, he, he wanted to sit under, under teachers. Two, he listened. Three, he asked questions. And four, he gave answers. And what this means to me is, is that if, if the Son of God sought out teachers 
and listened to them and asked questions and gave answers about the things of God, then there should never be a time in our lives where we stop doing the same. We will never arrive, ever. Seek understanding. Never give up on seeking greater understanding of the scriptures, of Jesus and his work and his purpose in your life. Never give up. Be zealous about this. Be hungry to learn. Never stop learning. Never stop asking questions. Never stop providing answers. I mean, see, that's another important thing, is provide answers for people. I feel tremendously challenged by the example of this 12-year-old Jesus just to, to strive to, you know, for increased wisdom and understanding of Scripture. And I just urge all of us to just seek out wise teaching. Do it. Find yourself a, a wise teacher who loves the counsel of God and His Word and listen to that person. Ask questions. Keep asking until it just sort of all begins to fit together. And then have that teacher ask you questions and you give answers back. That's what you know, this, is, this is what Jesus did. This is what school was like. This is what it was about. People who want to learn don't ever get. You hear that, Layla? You hear that? Don't ever. Okay. See, I'm calling people out there young, right? <laughs> Always want to learn. Always want to learn. All right, let's get, let's, let's get back to the text. Let's get to that, that phrase, that, that statement that Jesus made that makes us uh, scratch our head. Verse 48 through 50. When his parents saw him, they found him. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So that last statement, they did not understand Jesus, is Luke's way of saying to us, and all of, all of those who would read this gospel, Hey, look, there's more here than meets the eye. There's, this, is a, this is an important point. Don't miss it. Sort of, Luke says that later in, in, in uh, chapter 18. Jesus shares with his disciples some hints about his impending death. And Luke records the same commentary there. He says, well, they didn't grasp what he was saying at the time. And so his parents were searching and searching and searching. And finally, they find him at the temple. And it makes me wonder, where did they search first? Right? You know, like, did they go to the playground when he wasn't there? Did they go to the swimming hole? They have a local, wherever the local swimming hole is in Jerusalem, this, you know, the shops or the bakery or where? I mean, I, I don't know. But, but Jesus kind of looks at him and says, you shouldn't have had to seek at all. I mean, don't you know, Mom? There's, there's, you know, there's on my life an inner necessity to be in my father's house or to be about his business. Either one of those translations is possible here. And so I'll conclude with this. I think the main point of this entire passage can probably be found in the contrast between the words, your father and my father, in that last statement. Mary says, your father and I have been searching for you. And how does Jesus answer that? You should have known that I would be at the house of my father. In other words, Jesus has chosen this crucial stage in his life, right on the brink of manhood, to tell his parents in a really unforgettable and memorable way that he now knows who his real father is and what his life is meant to be, what his mission is. 
and what it will mean to him and what it will mean to Mary. I mean, last week in Luke you know, chapter 2, verse 35, we heard we learned from Simeon, the man of the temple, said to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary. And then a time will come when Jesus will be killed at Jerusalem. And after three days, he'll rise. Listen, three days, right? He'll rise from the dead. And there'll be great pain to Mary because of all of this during that time. Think about this. You have to wonder, is not this three-day unsettling of Mary and Joseph wondering where Jesus is? Searching for Jesus, is it perhaps a foreshadowing of that experience that's going to come later? She said, Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And so it seems to me that the main point of, of this section of Luke's gospel is that now Jesus recognizes his unique sonship to God and this mission that he has here on this earth. It's going to require of him a devotion of God and God's purposes so great that it takes precedence even over the closest of his family ties. He has to follow this calling. I mean, that's, even if it brings pain to his mom, right? And his, and his earthly father. And this is how Luke sets the stage for the adult ministry of the Son of God. In fact, when we turn the page next week to chapter 3, next Sunday, It'll be 18 years later 